Hillary, I have big news that I didn't share with you yet. Oh, what? Wait, what? Yeah. Beth and I went snowshoeing. No, what? Yes. We went snowshoeing like two weeks ago, three weeks ago. We loved it. It was so much fun. What? I understood now, <laughs> finally, what that guy from Shaman, what's his name? <laughs> I forgot the character's name. Uh, Loon. Loon. I knew it wasn't Click. <laughs> no, he didn't get uh, snowshoeing. We're, no spoilers. Um, I understood finally what Loon was on about in designing that new snowshoe because that's basically what a snowshoe is. Oh, nice. We loved snowshoeing. We then bought snowshoes with these saying like, we're going to go snowshoeing all the time now. We bought them on Amazon. They came. Then it was 60 degrees. What? And then it was raining and icy. This is February, by the way. We're recording yeah. this in February. Yeah. So we have not even been able to use the snowshoes yet uh, that we bought um, because it's been too warm or the conditions are bad. And now it's going to be like in the fifties for the next two days. So we don't even know if there's going to be enough snow to use our snowshoes until like next year. Well, <clears throat> Matt, I feel like this is a real good news, bad news situation. It's a real gift <laughs> of the Magi. <laughs> real a real gift of the magi because the good news is you all found an outdoor activity that's very main appropriate and that's really fun and you learned something about snowshoeing and i think that's great and the bad news is global climate disaster cold open that was good i can't handle the cold open because like i get caught up in it and then i forget what we're doing (laughs) well i don't know when to stop the cold open that's the other that's the other big risk of the cold open the the lengthy cold open the lengthy cold open the long cold open i like that Um, book yeah back to marooned on mars we're back hey we're back been a while we were going to record an episode on the new matrix movie but we didn't do that no i didn't even watch it Oh, too bad. You missed out. Um, uh, it's Matt and Hillary. This is our Kim Stanley Robinson read-along podcast. That's right. That's season, right. Season 11. What? I think it's season 11. So this is the 11th book we've done? Yes. That's crazy. I think the way I've, we've done, <laughs> you're being attacked by a cat. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even going to count through well, Mars, 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 Martians, Shaman, Red Moon is Red not Moon. a whole season. We no, just did an episode on that. Yeah. What else did we read? Aurora. Aurora. Twenty-three twelve. Oh my God, are we forgetting something? Maybe I'm, I'm probably forgetting something. I probably am counting the seasons in a weird way. Like I probably made a, a season that was just like movies or something like that. 
Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. This hmm. season is about Green Earth. Green Earth. is the Science in the Capital trilogy. Right. Originally published in 2004. First volume originally published in 2004. And then re-edited into a single, so three standalone, three, a three-volume trilogy re-edited into a big fat single volume called Green Earth. 1,000 pages. Big print though. Big, big print. print. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, uh, we're excited to read this. It's, um, we're going to go last year. Our last season was 2312. We took six months to read 500 pages. We're not going to do that this no, time. We're going to no, go we're gonna, fast. We're going to go zip. We're going to zip through this one. We're going to zip through it. Um, mm. Zip through a thousand pages. No problem. Just zippy. We're going to zip. Um, yeah. But I think, um, I think that's good for us because we've been very indulgent last time. And also I think this book, what's interesting to me about the book, having just finished reading it last week, the whole way through is the way that it kind of, the way that you can see things that are, that he's kind of resetting the table for himself in on issues and ways of thinking about science fiction that are really going to get honed and perfected in, or, or like, I mean, I don't would it, when one when hates to say perfected, but honed and kind of um, uh, improved upon, reiterated, right? In books like 2312, like Shaman, like Ministry for the Future, like New York 2140. Like mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, this book is ex a very, very much like Ministry for the Future in that it's about a realist novel set roughly in the present or like in the not too distant future about what are real things that could really happen to address climate change. And the fact that this book was, these books were written in 2004 through 2007, there's a certain number of, certain sort of set of presuppositions about what the world is that are baked into this book that kind of um, uh, sublated out uh, <laughs> over the next 15 years uh, until ministry got written, right? So that like the world was obviously a very different place and the conditions of possibility were a very different place under ministry than we're under here. And we can really see the difference, I think, Yeah. Um, in reading this book versus that book. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, um, the, the way in which, I mean, maybe the primary way in which the world is a different place now is that um, one of the, the sort of moves that these novels or this novel, Green Earth, um, makes is to, um, you know, really try to make palpable the actual presence of, of climate change yeah. in everyday, in everyday life. And, you know, as, as it's being written in 2004, <clears throat> um, through 2007, <sighs> that's mostly kind of a speculative endeavor, right? Which is not to say that that, which is not to say that climate change was not in fact present in everyday life. It was, um, but so many of the things that um, we now realize are, you know, that we can no longer avoid seeing as, um, uh, yes, we are living in this phenomenon and this phenomenon is, you know, not just like change, but something disastrous. So many of those things have really only become fully, I think, palpable 
in the last five years or so, particularly the ways in which like shifting weather patterns, um, not just extreme weather events, but also like, you know, substantive shifts in seasonality, um, like th those things have, have come to pass, right? And, and, you know, surely there are people who still don't see them or think about them and many people who don't wanna see them or think about them. Um, uh, but that is a real change in the structure of feeling, you know, in and in a, in the, like our sensory world since these novels were written. So there's a way in which the part of these books that has a sort of speculative dimension, the speculative aspect of it has kind of um, uh, stopped being speculative, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to say is I like your idea that this book is really like, you know, setting the table for a bunch of work that's going to come in, in the really um, extremely rangy and various and experimental novels that come after it. I mean, you know, they're not like fully uh, like, they're not like the experimental novel, but they experiment a lot. Um, uh, also, I think that this novel in a lot of ways I don't know whether this, I mean, I have no idea whether this is like the right thing to say in terms of like, um, you know, how KSR thinks about it or um, how like critics have treated it. But but to me, it seems like this novel is also kind of a response to the Mars trilogy. I mean, in calling it Green Mars in the rewrite is a direct like, you know, nod to a section in the, in the Mars trilogy. But um, uh Calling it Green Earth. Did I say that? Green Earth. I wasn't going to correct you because I yeah. don't want to break your concentration. You. Uh, I broke my own concentration. Yeah, I know. I, I, saw, I saw immediately that I should have interrupted you. You should have interrupted me. Um, but call it, calling it Green Earth is not only like a sort of call out to the Mars trilogy. It does seem to me that this is very much like a kind of um, uh, taking some of the things, you know, like the Mars trilogy is, I, I still think like, extremely anticipatory in the way that it lays out, um, I mean, so many things, like so many things, but but really in the ways it it sort of captures and lays out certain kinds of debates about environment, right? Um, like that, uh, you know, um, I mean, those books would be, if there was nothing else in those books, they would be worth reading solely for like, for that, right? Um, and this, these books, the Science in the Capital books, or their or their reworking as Green Earth, seem to me to be like a kind of effort to sort of bring some of that to bring it home, right? Um, and to bring it home both sort of to Earth, um, to bring it home to um, a real interest in like every kind of everyday life, yeah. Um, to bring it home to the United States, which yeah. I think is um, you know probably something you want to talk about, about how U.S. kind of centered these books are. Um, um, and also to bring it home in that, like, um, uh, you know, the kind of, um, this is not, this is not a book that has the kind of lines of flight, the speculation, um, like, um, uh, the kind of just like, you know, blowing your mind of the novum that like the Mars books are full of. And in mm -hmm. that way, like it, you know, like it takes those like science fictional energies um, and it really like harnesses them or like, you know, localizes them or does something. So it, it, 
you know, I, I mean, I think it's plausible that we could then think of this as a kind of like hinge moment across KSR's writing. Um, I think despite the fact that this is not an experimental book in the ways that like, you know, 2312 or um, New York 2140 are, I do feel like it is something of an experiment. It's an experiment in doing something, in doing a very new near future SF, in doing a sort of like SF of everyday life, um, a kind of SF of like banality also. yeah, and it's interesting. So I read this. So I have not. I'm just going to probably read along with the chunks that we're reading for each day of the podcast. I read the books. I don't know, ten years ago, probably um, in their original novel sequence. Um, so it's interesting to revisit it. You know, I feel like I read them much closer to the date of their publication. Um, yeah, I wonder if you'll be able to notice like things that have been cut out or because it seems like it mm-hmm. seems like in a way like not how much got cut out i com- i compressed about 1100 pages to about 800 nothing important was lost in the squishing and the new version has a better flow as far as i can tell so it's only 300 pages out of 1100 yeah. so it's not that much compression really in a no. way Mm-mm. um so i wonder if you'll you'll see the difference. But I think also like going off of what you were saying and maybe as a way to get into the book too, is I think that there's um, in light of, especially in light of like what comes after, you could see why he would be dissatisfied with what he did here, because it is a kind of first attempt to bring a lot of the apparatus from the Mars books into an earth context in a way and make it really directly um, uh, relatable to a kind of, um, yeah, to a level of like, you know, we've been using, before we started recording, banality, mundanity, the everyday. Um, I mean, the very first line of the book proper, weekdays always begin the same, right? That there's this, we live our lives in uh, periods of routine and um, iteratives and pseudo iteratives, and that um, this is a kind of an experiment in, in part, the book is an experiment in relating those routines and iteratives and the everyday in a world that is radically changing um, in, in as little as three years, there may be an ice age is the, is the kind of novum or something like, like that, right? Um, and what would that look like for people um, who are not used to changing that quickly? People who are, you know, you know white collar, highly educated, pretty affluent, scientists, bureaucrats, people who on a moment's notice might be talking to the president of the United States. Right. Um, right. What would life be like for those type of people um, in this, in these kind of circumstances? And um, I think that there's, you know, it's an interesting project to, to undertake um, and that um, the set of concerns that surround that project are 
being worked out here in a, in a way that in retrospect, we could say is a kind of nascent way because of how well they get worked out in these, in the subsequent books. So I yeah. think like, you know, I mean, you know, to be dissatisfied with these books as they stand from his point of view is a kind of productive dissatisfaction because they give rise to the books they come after. That's how I'm viewing it. Yeah, I think that makes that makes a lot of uh, I think that makes a lot of sense, and that just made me think. Right, so um, you know, we um, uh, in the review piece we wrote about ministry oh, for the future, which was to finally, say, finally published. <laughs> everybody, pause your recordings. Log on to New Review New Labor Forum New Labor Forum dot org or something uh, yeah i think it's paywalled really yeah i don't okay maybe it's paywalled i, I think it maybe is paywalled god no okay. i don't know why i don't know who's anyway we're published it. authors now in uh the ksr uh ksariana yeah we're part of the ksr universe now yeah i guess we already were the extended universe we're published um, yeah but what okay so maybe we, we can link to that we can link to our great review in the show notes um uh, so something we tried to say in there about ministry that I think was like, you know, if we made a good point in that piece, this was the thing that I think was a good point. Lulu, can you just maybe, um, okay. Uh, uh, you know, I think there's a kind of acknowledged sense that I think there's a sense that like one of, one of the issues, um, that faces us with climate change is like, what's going to make people feel it in such a way that they are ready to um, act. Um, and I think that we read ministry as a lot about that question. Um, and in that piece, we suggest, I, I mean, this is not the only reading you can make of that book, but in that piece, we suggest that like, what, one of the things that ministry does is rather than, I mean, it does a little bit of the like, let me make you feel what climate change is like, right? Which is kind of what climate fiction has generally sort of turned to, um, you know, the, sh the shock and awe version of it, right? Like shake you out of your, your you know, insensitivity or whatever it is. Um, but we kind of suggested that, that really mostly rather than do that, ministry thinks about conditions and ways in which like, you don't feel like you really can have feelings about things like being post-traumatic or mourning or being depressed or whatever it is. Um, you feel cut off from feeling um, and hence like the path to action, the, the idea that like feeling and action are, are, you know, like you have the right kind of feeling and then you're gonna take the right kind of action, um, which I think is kind of like a classic liberal idea. like you know, that book tries to give us something else, right? Um, you know, and to make us think something about how like action is gonna have to be taken while we all still feel like shit and while, <laughs> while we're all still depressed and like all of, the, all of those things. And, you know, this, I was thinking as you were talking, like this book is also a book about that sort of question about like, what will it take to make people feel this? Um, and interestingly, it's, you know, populated by a lot of characters who have pretty weird relationships to feeling, um, including sort of the, the set of scientist characters who are in one way or another, 
either think that they have a totalized account of what feeling is um, or are like just suspicious of feeling as a kind yeah. of like unwanted subjectivity. Um, so that I think is an interesting kind of strain in the book. And it's interesting to see that getting worked at here. And then the other, the other thing I was thinking when you were talking is like, yeah, it is kind of interesting that this is also a book about like the professional managerial class. If you yes. believe that that's a class or a class fragment, that certainly is a way to describe like a set of people who have a set of kinds of jobs that put them in a really particular relationship to the world. And I think like, as you were talking, I was thinking like, yeah, like to be part, to be like a professional, um, uh, particularly the kind of professional who has an advanced degree, um, is really also to in all likelihood be a person who has a very strong sense of like, um, uh, one's own intentionality in making one's life and like one's kind of like a relationship to like being effective or something like yeah. that, right? Get things done, blah, 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 blah. And like, that is kind of like most of the characters in this book, like fall into that space. So we're seeing like a very particular kind of person start to have to wrestle with the thing that is not amenable to the kind of like meritocratic effectivity that professionals think that they own right the, the hyper productivity that these characters engage mm -hmm. in is and i as we're talking i'm think i'm feeling more strongly about my theory that these characters are not necessarily supposed to be like very likable in 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 a lot of ways like anna and frank particularly um are the characters that came sprung to mind when you were talking about um their attitudes toward feeling and work yeah. because <laughs> frank frank's Frank's just this lost cause of sociobiology. Like he just is just like, oh, I'm feeling this because uh, 10 million years ago on the savannah, uh, a monkey got hit in the head by a coconut or whatever. You know what right, I mean? And, right. And, right. Every, and, right. Yeah. And Anna and Anna and Anna is like, um, you know, I, I, it makes me think of the 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 scene toward the end of the section that we're talking about where um, she has the Buddhists over for dinner. And Drepung asks her, like, why do you do science? And she's like, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why wouldn't, why wouldn't, why doesn't everybody do science? And he's like, no, but what do you want to get out of it? And she's like, I don't know, to understand things better. And he's like, yeah, exactly. To understand things better. That's why we're Buddhists. And she's like, no, you guys are, that's not what science is. And he's like, actually, it kind of is what science yeah. is, you know? <laughs> Um, but, but over and over she's, she, you know, she's described as a person who doesn't like to think about these things, doesn't like politics or history, basically right. like politics and history are like the subjective and what she's focused on is objective science and what the book, you know, and what not this, this book, but more so the later books show again and again is that politics, history, and science are all one, they're not all one thing, but they're, they're all integral in order to understand where we are and how we get out of this and yeah. move on to something new. Yeah. 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 That seems, that seems exactly right. And I, I think it's also, I, I also feel like, um, this is not a book in which I have especially warm feelings toward most of the characters, um, which I think I do. I do think that that is the book's mode a little bit, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, that it's 
Yeah, I do think that's the book's mode a little bit. I was trying to think like, so it does a kind of, um, it is sort of a chapter by chapter perspectival cutting, right? From this person to this person to this mm-hmm. person with little interstitial moments that are not really as, um, uh, the, which is something that I, I think like later of Stan's novels use in a much more developed way. Here they kind of seem like, you know, much more like just an interstitial Mm -hmm. moment than anything else. So a little bit, we're getting the kind of, um, we're getting like a version of like the realist novel that gives us like the big picture of the social world, you know, like moves from story, intersecting storylines from storyline to storyline to storyline. And like, uh, yeah, and and here I think unlike the Mars books where we really have um, a lot of I would say like deep attention to character, um, I think this book just does not work in that mode. Um, you know, and and in that way, it's also we were saying before we started recording, like it's a it's a, a really fast read, like compared to twenty three twelve, which. You know, I felt like we could have talked about every single page of that book. And I mean, obviously you and I always have something to say, but we could, we could have really had something to say about every page of that book. Like this has a much more like, um, just like sort of, uh, forward momentum quality to it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, and, and we've, these words that we've already been using sort of mundanity and banality are. Our kind of arc, I mean, it's a, or domesticity is another, maybe a more positive word <laughs> um, to think about it. Our, depends on who you ask. Depend, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, are kind of, you know, kind of crucial. I mean, I think that there's also within that, there's a little bit of a, you know, there's a distancing kind of critique of these kinds of modes as well. Like the questioning of like, um, well, like for instance, just very early on when she, when Anna sees the Buddhists, you know, kind of lost in their new embassy, not knowing where to go. And she sort of takes pity on them. Where do you, do you know some places for lunch or something? She compares that to her child um, dropping the kid off at the, at school. Yeah. And that, you know, on the one hand, that's a little bit, you know, for sensitive readers like you and I, we're like, oh, we're comparing these adults to children and these, uh, you know, people from a third world country to children. That's funny. But yeah. also it's a critique of kind of the institutionalization of like the education system in modern in the modern world. Like you drop your children off to these like strangers, whether they like it or not. And it takes them, it's a traumatic experience for those kids to be dropped off the first day of school. Um, and there's this kind of institutionalization that is going on that's built into this kind of like society that we have. And so there's a kind of, and we're in a society where everybody is alienated from each other and we're all strangers to each other. And, um, you know, and, and it, which also folds into the kind of psychobiology or psychopaleobiology that Frank engages in of like, why are we surrounded by all these strangers and we can't relate to each other and, and kind of everything feels like unnatural in in a way once you stop to think about it or whatever um so there's a there is kind of there are those moments in this book i think that kind of serve to alienate us from what um i think the 
you know, the quote unquote ideal reader would take to be the everyday, yeah. but it's not a main, I wouldn't say it's like, you know, it's obviously not a main focus of the book. It, I think it pops up here and there, but it's not a, um, you have to like hunt for, you have to like look for it in a way. And I think that the, I think that, you know, the kind of the construction of the characters as being somewhat unappealing or somewhat alienating from us is part of that kind of opens the door to that kind of like critique, meta critique or something. Yeah, I think that the, so we, for today, we, I don't think we said this, we read up to chapter five. Yeah. Um, which is um, the first 115 pages of uh, 40 Signs of Rain, which is part one of Green Earth. Um, and, um, you know, I, I was just thinking as, as you were talking about this sort of, um, you know, institution and alienation. Uh, so a lot of this first section um, is devoted to thinking about um, childcare and living with small children. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it clearly harkens back to, I think, the last short story in The Martians, which is mm-hmm. um, uh, about a dad who's a writer who is having to, like, manage um, manage childcare and this kind of, like... Um, complicated and difficult but also playful and really like flourishing um and ridiculous and and loving day um of of finishing the finishing the novel and and taking care of the kid mm-hmm. um uh and yeah so i i wanted to just i thought like um something for me in this first part that i think is actually interesting is um uh so, yeah, okay, if this is a, a realist novel that's being written like it's science fiction, it, the prologue says something along those lines, um, you know, and I guess it's worth thinking about, like, or is it a science fiction novel that's being written like it's real, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like, something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, the realist novel always ha- always has to move, right, between the domestic and, like, whatever is understood to be outside the domestic, the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that movement, right, that back and forth um, uh, or even just forth or whatever it is, like that's really that's really key to, to realism, right? Um, uh, you know, um, and it's also key to like uh, constituting like what we think the domestic is, right? I mean, I think a lot of our ideas about domesticity um, the privacy of the home. Um, I think a lot of those are, are born by a, you know, um, uh, by a cultural tradition that absolutely includes like realist, realist representation, um, including the idea that like, you know, when you go home, you get away from what's out there, right. That it's the, it's the refuge, um, uh, that it's the, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So something that I think is quite interesting here is um, that we see um, uh, there's a scene in this first part where um, Anna is pumping breast milk at work. um, And, you know, because she is the version of a scientist that she is like, um, that is a like highly, you know, she has like a very like um, sort of um, 
Uh, it's routinized, you know, she knows exactly what she's doing. Although also tellingly in that scene, she overflows, she, she over pumps and has too much and has to fill up a snack sized, a snack sized container. Um, and so like, you know, there, which is a kind of like, you know, it's kind of a sweet moment of characterization of her. She gets distracted by learning things. In fact, learning about the history of the National Science Foundation, I think is what, where she works is what yes. distracts her. Yeah. Um, you know, but so, so we see that like um, there, uh, um, we see like a lot of the kind of like, we see how that like, um, we see Charlie feeding, what's the, what is the rambunctious? Joe. Uh, Joe. We see, right, Joe. We see Charlie feeding, feeding Joe with um, the, with the breast milk from the bottle. Right. So we have this kind of like, um, you know, there is a thought there about like alienation in the form of separate in its most literal sense, right. Separation, um, you know, uh, you know, that like Anna has to alienate this from her in order to be able to go to work, right? We also see that as enabling possibility. And we see that as absolutely within like still structures of care, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Anna and Charlie are represented in this first part as um, people who are different, but are also very close to each other. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, there's this kind of like, um, and then we see a lot of Charlie caring for Joe um, right. in, in detail. Um, and there's kind of more detail about that than really, I think anything else that we see in the first part of the book yeah. um, uh, about, you know, who Joe is and what he's like and like why it's hard to have a toddler of this like hyper energetic kind um, of, you know, like how he gets in the backpack, how he falls asleep, what he likes to eat how he sucks on the tendon on the back of his dad's neck. And this whole sequence ends with um, Charlie, or almost at the end, right? Is Charlie having to go to the White House? I think that is the end of this. That's the end, yeah. Uh, Charlie has to go to the White House and ends up having thinking he's going to meet with the science advisor, but ends up having to meet with the president too. And at the sort of climax of this, like, you know, restrained argument they're having about whether climate change is real and needs to be responded to legislatively or not, um, Joe wakes up and is is sucking on the back of his neck and Charlie is just like eventually rendered like helpless with laughter. So, you know, um, that I think there's something to think about the way in which, um, so for both Anna and Charlie, like their professional life um, and their lives as people who are engaged in in the work of social reproduction, are really not separable. They've like become intertwined. That's possible for both of them because they are people with a certain kind of privilege that Charlie can have his job and work remotely in the year, mm -hmm. whatever year this is. Um, and um, that Anna has an office where she has enough privacy that she can like, you know, pump without like having people walking in on her. There's a fridge, all of those other things, right? Um, but that, you know, this I think is an interesting or worth noting kind of backdrop to um, the sort of like, um, uh, as we move between like science and politics, right? The question, the, the sort of like question about like what the status of the domestic is here, which I think can look, I, I think is a little bit more, and th I think there's more of an inter, sorry, I'm talking for such a long time, but I think there's a little bit more of an interpenetration between the domestic and the world 
uh, or a sort of mixing of those things or making uncertain of the boundaries between them than one might think. Yeah. Sounds good. No. Um, <laughs> well, I think that's underscored too by like the reaction of Dr. Strangelove and the president to Charlie with Joe on his back. They're kind of, it allows them to be sort of dismissive of him. Be, and it's foregrounded by Charlie's meditation earlier on about like him being the only dad at Jimboree. And like, you know, the reason people move to DC is not so that a man can be a stay at home father and stuff like that. So there's this self-consciousness there that is understood to be external, but that doesn't actually end up affecting their yeah. productivity, their inner lives, their domesticity. Like they're living um, a really, you know, the picture of their family is very loving, um, very like chaotic, but also functional, like it works, but also not without, you know, the everyday challenges of being a parent, I assume. Um, and like like that that moment where she over pumps because she's reading um, the history of the NSF is also mirrored in the moment when Charlie is standing around at the playground thinking to himself, you know, I am a good dad and it is hard, but it's rewarding. And then he turns around and like Joe is running Just into running traffic. Into traffic. <laughs> <laughs> like, so there is this, you know, again, it's a kind of, yeah, an ironic character position of like them thinking of themselves in one way. And then of course, like the exact opposite is what's really happening and kind of um, part of the arc, the character arc of many of his, of Stan's books and many of his uh, characters is that they, you know, think of themselves in one way and are tr constantly trying to reconcile them, them, the image they have of themselves with the reality of themselves yeah, yeah. or to kind of even those things out. Um, and then the third main character being Frank, uh, who I don't even know what to do with in, <laughs> in, in, in the thread of that conversation, because this guy is just like a crazy horn dog who, who <laughs> is also like, He's obsessed with, you know, the sociobiology thing. He's a uh, kind of an, more or less an extreme athlete in a way. And then also as the book starts, I mean, his arc is really inflected and influenced by the arc of the Kambalis, these, 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 these Tibetan uh, Buddhist monks um, who kind of help him in a way, like f f figure himself out a little bit. Um but that he, what was I going to say? Oh, I mean, one thing that seems to be a kind of inciting incident in another, which would be a major sort of inciting incident in a, maybe another kind of novel or with a different author is when he's at the meeting uh, to fund research projects and he intentionally using his skills at psycho sociobiology um and uh he he intentionally tanks the the project of jan pierzynski that he wants to eventually poach and make a lot of money on right yeah. um so which is like sets him up as a you know unsavory individual not necessarily like internally divided between like sort of science and capital, but um, a person who's like need, who's like not a, not a great guy, at least at the beginning, like willing to be unethical for whatever capricious reasons he can justify to himself. 
Yeah. I mean, somebody who has, I mean, uh, he and Anna are both people with very intense worldviews. Um, but, um, you know, his, his worldview in the, in the Frank sections, like, um, you are just fully within his account of what human beings are, which no matter what, what is going on, you know, like sitting around in a conference room with computers and post-it notes and deciding what, you know, projects to fund, like in a weird traffic jam situation, like whatever it is, like it just, yeah, the traffic thing is psycho like super oh. psycho yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever it is it is simply traceable back is you know simply a reflection of certain kinds of primate behaviors reflected through a set of descriptors like everybody will always do like the prisoner's dilemma or whatever yeah. so he he even has like you know the ways in which human beings act toward each other like labeled as a series of like you know named supposed like uh, you know supposed experiments that prove how like humans act um which you know you know i think we see anna as m- somewhat more open or at least at least sort of like willing to take a look at certain kinds of things in a way that frank is pretty clearly very well shielded by the sort of ideological um, yeah. presuppositions of his work. Well, I think too that um, going back to the kind of point of sort of the ironic character, the ironic relationship that the characters have to themselves. Early on, Frank is in the elevator with Anna, and he's like, "Oh, there's a male science and a female science," and Anna is like too emotional but then he think he's like oh she's not actually that emotional and blah, blah blah and just like thinking of that idea that he has in relation to where his character goes the arc like the not the arc but like his narrative through the whole the whole book um that's deeply ironic because he's constantly acting out like insanely emotionally yeah. like he is completely out of control of himself and when he, and even when he's like rigging the funding um, meeting, he's doing it for out of complete cynical self-interest. Like it's not, it has nothing to do with objective science or anything like that. It is purely like self-motivated and for that reason, like emotional in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and I think we get like, um, you know, I, I think we get some interesting, so I, I'm thinking two, I'm thinking two things like one is, I think there is an interesting sort of structure here in which like, um, so in this first section, um, the, the most, the science that we see the most is like genetics and the, um, and really like the kind of science that underpins, um, biotech, Um, and, um, and like, we're not really like in this first section, like there's just no, I don't think there's a way to be sure how to connect like what's happening there to anything else. Right. Um, and we see these kind of like, um, uh, uh, but we get a kind of like a sense of, um, uh, um, 
on the one hand, we're like thinking from the very, from the very sort of first, like kind of prologue moment, we're thinking about climate change. But then when we see science, it, it's, you know, experimentation on mice, when we see science in action, right, it's experimentation on mice, it's like down to the kind of like, genetic level. And um, when we're in that lab, we get an account of like science, um, that I think is like, very much like, playing off of um, that book, Science in Action by um, Bruno Latour and Wolgar, Steve Wolgar, I can't remember what his name is, um, which, you know, looks at like, what is it? So these are the kinds of like ways in which science makes claims. The ways in which science makes claims look very different from the, from the work of science in the lab itself, right? And that gets like really sort of played out for us. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, like we get science itself as a kind of topic. It's also obviously a topic because the two scientists who we, the main two scientists who we meet, Anna and Frank, are both working for NSF and are both having to decide about funding for grants, right? And this is both clearly a process that requires that one be a scientist um, and is also like about, although neither one of them thinks of it this way, it's also about like politics too, yeah. right? Um, uh, when we're at the biotech space, like it's a lab and the people in the lab are working, you know, with good intentions, trying to figure things out. And yet at the same time, like they're basically trying to do an experiment to prove that a certain thing can be done because their CEO or whatever himself, also a scientist has already said publicly that it can be done. And therefore it's part of their like IPO or whatever it is that's going to happen. So we get these like, you know, the the sort of entanglements of the world these worlds that are supposed to be separate and pure are right there in front of us from the very beginning and i think this is kind of true in the like um uh you know um yeah so i, I think that that's like we both are asked to sort of like think about science think about different sciences and how they might relate to each other right there's a little bit in here about mathematics you know um like what you know where is mathematics the sort of like bridge between like something like genetics and something like climate science say right um uh uh, so we get these kind of like, I don't know, we get these oppositions and then we get these places where we see like the oppositions are really actually not clear at all. Like stuff is really muddled and it is really, is also really human, you know? And like, um, yeah. I think that um, too, something that we talked about, I think before we started recording is that the idea here in 2004 through 2007, when this book is being written, during the Bush administration felt very much like, oh, if only we had people who believed in science, that's the, in, in charge of making decisions, that's the big kind of impediment. Yeah. And in the subsequent years, and it was easy to think that way at back at that time, because George W. Bush was such a lightning rod of stupidity and like, and, uh, <laughs> and Christian fundamentalism and all of this, you know, anti-science stuff. And, in the years since then, it's become much more clear to everybody who cares to pay attention. Not that it wasn't clear to every to some people back then, but glaringly, uh, uh, undeniably clear that that's not the problem. The problem is capitalism itself. Yeah, and that New York twenty one forty and Ministry for the Future 
understand that very clearly and take, take that very seriously and think very deeply about that. And here it's much easier to, or like here the impulse is to say, science isn't integrated enough into kind of a sense of human feeling or uh, a sense of kind of how people act in the world and can take action and do politics. And so that the bridge is would, would have to be between sort of science and the kind of integrated person or, and it which would then give rise to like an integral politics or something like that, or some kind mm -hmm. of, and I think that what the gap between those two, what it turns out is that there's a gap between those two and that gap is filled by the capitalist, like the system of capitalism, <laughs> which is further described in the later novels. And because, and that gap is already here and it's there at the, at Tory Pines generic. Right. And it's the gap between the guy who used to be a scientist, but is now a CEO and the people who are actually doing the science at his lab. And that gap is just like not explored in these books or in this book anywhere close to the extent that it's explored in the, in the later books. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that seems right. So we are getting like, we're getting this kind of, um, we are getting representations of science as non-innocent. That, that seems right. And yeah. I mean, and as you were saying, like with Frank also, we see, you know, like um, here is somebody who like that science is being done for profit, you know, and that, you know. Um, uh, he's just so cynical too. I mean, he's cynical about everything. Like he's cynical about that. And he's cynical about like the prospects of humanity living on. Like his, his yeah. sociobiology has convinced him that we're just a doomed species and that's it. Right. 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 Um, so sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, 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 no. So I, I just, I think like, um, we both, we both see some of those entanglements and we also like, there is also still, I think, you know, at the, at the end of this section, like the argument that Charlie is having in polite terms with the president and with Dr. Strangelove, the science advisor is really a, but the science is real. And they're right. saying, it's not all oh, those are fuzzy concepts or whatever you know like and that and, and there is still some sense like grant science sufficient autonomy right grant science sufficient authority um and we take care and we take care of this problem right or there there is that kind of possibility and like where that has to happen is at the level of like convincing people from a particular like location right. on the political spectrum that this is true um you know the, that the science is real and i, I think like you know yeah, we have seen, I think, uh, you know, all we needed, if you didn't already think this, all we needed was the Obama administration to see it just like, doesn't matter how much people say the science is real, or, you know, believe science or put believe science on their yard signs, like none of that is like, you know, where, where the possibility for something else happening is, is located is not in those kinds of questions about like whether you think science has authority or not. Um, I, I mean, it's not, it's not going to happen. At the, it's not an ideological problem, you know, like um, I don't think it's a problem about like convincing people of things. I think feeling does have something to do with it, but you know, I, I, I think like, um, yeah, like you just said, this is about capital, right? This is not, um, but that is not, well, th that is not what, that that feels like those kind of like tensions 
um, they appear here, but they don't feel like um, sort of fleshed out in the way that they will in something like New York 2140, for example. They don't drive the they don't drive the story, and part of the reason they don't drive the story is because it is a, a going back. It is a domestic story, right? And like in a way. And so like, and that moment, that moment of confrontation at the end of this section between the president, his science advisor and Charlie is a moment where Charlie is struggling to make a, you know, clear argument about science and the science advisor and the president are, I mean, the reason he devolves into like giggling, uncontrollable giggling is both that Joe is chewing on his tendon and that the president has like fallen back into these like rhetorical um, cliches. And so the conflict there is between science, which is like true and rhetoric, which is right. which feels right because 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 it, rhetoric is good at making 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 it sound like you're making sense without making sense. So there's like a feeling of sense making there without making any sense. So in fact, like if it did defend depend on feeling or like ideology, science would always lose because rhetoric is so much more amenable to like shutting down debate or um being like winning the charm offensive or something like right, that. Right. Right. Well, it turns I mean it turns out that like, you know, science, you know, quote unquote can be deployed rhetorically too. I mean, you know, right? Like that's what the, yeah. that's the well, Biden administration, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, and that's what this president is doing too in the book right. is is yeah, doing the same. Well, this, you know, we let's let's not be hasty or whatever. Right, we, right. We still have to get all the data in or whatever. Meanwhile, right, it, right. The exactly. ice caps are melting, right? Right. I mean, I think that that like, yeah. I mean, and you know, it is interesting because the sort of, I don't know, I was just thinking it would be interesting to think this, to try to think this as a book that's also about social reproduction, you know? Um, I mean, and you probably can't really do that because its point of view is pretty narrow because we really just have this like one, we have this one nuclear family, right? But if we think that like, um, if we think that one version of what we see is people who are in some ways like really stretching themselves in order to be able to like do all the things that they have to do, right? I mean, I don't know. There are questions there about like, you know, um, uh, the way in which the, the domestic is not, in fact, like cut off from those, it's not cut off from capital, right? It's actually like an effect of mm -hmm. capital, something that's produced by capital. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say this is like really not connected to what we were just talking about. But I do think one thing about this book is it is, it is a lot of men characters. Um, and just like, you know, um, uh, and this is, you know, obviously not something I normally think about Stan's novels because I think that like he's um, actually really great at thinking about questions about gender and writes like fantastic women characters. But um, in this first section, like, you know, um, we do see a lot of like men, you know, that Charlie and has a phone conversation with someone about like, you know, drinking Anna's breast milk, which like... I'm glad that she wasn't there to hear that phone conversation because I bet yeah. she doesn't want to think that's what her husband is talking about when she's not there. And like in the lab, in the lab at Tory Pines, like they make jokes about like how the woman who has to kill the 
mice is like you know meaner when she's when she has like pms or whatever just right. like holy shit it would be nice it would be a little bit nice if like there was a moment where like there were like two women talking to each other but are then... you saying that this book doesn't pass the bechdel test oh god yeah i mean obviously i don't give a shit about that but it is it does it is a little <laughs> bit like um you know uh yeah it is a it it, it, it could it's, have more women in it. It's, <laughs> it is surprising, especially considering the fact that Anna Quibbler begins the book. Um, yeah. How, you know, she's still a main character, but I think Charlie and Frank are the, are the main characters of the book very clearly. And I think I choose, I, I think my strategy will be to choose to uh, interpret the book as intentionally having uh, unappealing characters so that we, <laughs> and like hyper, like, like men characters who are like unappealing so that we focus more on the science <laughs> or like the possibility of change or like, or something like that. Um, it's a Brechtian move in my view. Yeah. 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 Um, no, you know, I'm, I'm not like making a big point. I was just struck by that on sort of on rereading it like I mean I think it's surprising too I I was definitely surprised by that too also in the context of the fact that as a trilogy in light of the Mars books where you have like 10 15 main characters that are fully flushed out here you have another trilogy and really like there's like only like three maybe four main characters who get a lot of focus and really Frank is like the big focus of the book yeah yeah um um i was gonna say something else oh yeah i don't know that's all probably <laughs> i mean the the other cool things about the book are you know again typically robinsonian things about um moving around and having a body and like yeah rock climbing kayaking very strong sense of place of setting um washington dc um and again an interesting move you know i this is just the way my mind works is just contextualizing it in the other books in terms of their sense of place and what would a big natural disaster look like here in washington dc versus in new york versus in india versus in california you know these kinds yeah, of yeah of things um which obviously happens uh at the end of this for of 40 signs of rain is this massive flooding of the DC um, area. Um, but already we have, and the, like the contrast again with ministry for the future after Stan had like discovered the, uh, or not discovered, but found out about the phenomenon of a wet bulb temperature. Like here you can feel the heat already. Yeah. Um, when, when Frank is rock climbing, uh, you know, he can feel the sweat on his face fail to evaporate. So there's already looking forward to this, you know, possibility of it being just simply too hot. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's interesting too. Yeah. And it's really, I, that like, I, I think that is, it's really beautifully played off of like, people do, you know, talk about how DC is a swamp and it's so hot and it's so, you know, all of those things, like those have long just been characterizations of DC. And that makes the sort of like, um, I don't know, for, I, I think that that's like, that's such a marvelous part of these books is this kind of like 
how do you register the difference between like this thing that we've all, always noticed or, you know, oh, it's just a really hot day or this yeah. is a really hot summer and something else. And obviously one way you can register that is, is you know, like through science, science and record keeping and being able to like see that. Right? right. But another question is like, yeah, how do, how do you register that in your body? Right. And how do you register it in your body before it becomes a crisis? Like, I love that the scene when um, Charlie and Joe are out on the, on the national mall and they're like, Joe is napping and Charlie is also falling asleep. And he's like thinking about like, oh, on an incredibly hot day, like what, you know, like what could be cozier than holding an incredibly hot sleeping, sleeping toddler. But it's like, it's a beautiful and sweet moment. And it's also, and it's also like, it's one of, it's like one of the signs of rain, right? I mean, it's like part of, you know, and that I think that is my main memory of reading these books the first time. And I still, on the second time, I was like, it's that is done I just think really brilliantly you know like to give you that kind of like uncertainty of like how you should interpret this you know like what's is it a crisis is it not a crisis how do you know Um, well it's interesting too again going back to the context of the of the original writing of the book 2004 you could you know everybody had conversations of like oh it's so hot oh that global warming you know it was just part of the normal every day and now 15 years later 17 years later, it's, you know, harder to make those side comments or jokes, at least for some of us. I mean, in Maine, it's going to be 50 degrees tomorrow. It's February 17th. And all the native Mainers are like, this is awesome. And I'm like, it's really probably not that awesome. It's probably a pretty (laughs) bad sign uh, for, you know, human living. Um, but, But back in 2004, it was possible that was the kind of main thing is like, if you acknowledged it at, at all, you would, it would be kind of an offhand joke about, I guess, global warming, right. blah, blah, blah. Right. But it, it, you know, in the wake of all the, the, you know, name any catastrophe that we've experienced in the last three, four or five years, the fires in California, the freeze in Texas, the, you know, hurricane Sandy, um, all the you know, hurricane Maria, Etc. 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 It's 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 not that funny anymore. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. this book is anticipating that. You know, the, the, these books are really anticipating that. Um. Yeah. And it, and it, and I think that that happens. Like, I really do think that that's like it's kind it's subtle in here. You know, yeah. like um, uh, and it gives you that feeling of like, yeah, this it's really hard to distinguish. You know, um, well, it's subtle. It's subtle here at the beginning of the book, and it becomes much more thematic um, after the flood and after this kind of like incredible winter sets in and, you know, you know, entire lives and livelihoods are upended and, and the ferals come out and all of this stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I also, I really, I love the moment when um, after, oh, when Anna is inviting the Tibetans to come over to the house and um one of them is like oh yeah oh we can definitely do friday oh and it's the full moon and she's like oh i don't i don't keep track of that or something you know i'm sure thinking like you know something to do their religion and he's like oh because of the tide oh i do because of the tides and at that moment like nothing is you know like it's not explained for you you know um like 
unless you take the leap to think, right, oh, tides are higher at the full moon. And these are people whose lives are imperiled by, yeah. you know, even even the like marginally higher tide of the full yeah. moon, right? I mean, but but that, that you know, that that can that looks like, oh, that's like some sort of like spirit, it's spirituality or something I, like that, right? Yeah, I love that. I, I, I totally agree with you about that moment. And it's another moment that makes me feel like the characters, again, are at least early on, like sort of intentionally alienated from the reader because. You know, she very, I, I think for her projecting onto her, like, yeah, she probably thinks, oh, like, this is some Kambali Tibetan thing about the moon. And he's like, no, we're actually doing science when we yeah. track, like, right. science that's, like, vital to our livelihood when we track right. the tides. Um, and it, and it just, like, it, it just, like, lands there. And, like, it, again, as you say, it's not explained. So it's it's for us to put those things together. And the fact that and so there's like this, and I do like really like the, I don't know, there's part, I, 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 I think that the Buddhist plot here or the, the yeah, the, the Buddhist plot in this book is, is really interesting. I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say it's unproblematic, but I think it's kind of productively problematic in the way that it like, that, that they frame science as well in a, in a different you know, they bring a different light to the scientific method than Anna and Frank and the NSF do. Um, and But also like in the way that we've talked on this podcast so much about the relationship between Buddhism and science that wends through many of his books, which is that both are kind of paying of attention, which is a kind of love and you're not like, you're like you know, you give you give your attention to these these things, and you like are deeply involved in a particular moment that um, it can that at that any moment can be kind of revelatory um, and uh, grounding and um, spiritual in a way. But 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 that there but that the line between spirituality and science or art and science is 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 an artificial one and it's constantly fungible or whatever. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like those, those things are too underscored by, I mean, for me in a weird way, like underscored by the fact that like the Drepung is going to buy Rudra Cochran some tennis shoes and he's going to love them and that they love pizza. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like that kind of thing. Well, I, I like, I also like the moment when, um, I think this is at the dinner party. Sorry. Louise is, Louise is feeling very much that she is being mistreated because it is right. not it is dinner time um, dinner time but uh um i think it's at the dinner at the dinner party um anna is talking to one of the monks i can't remember which one and you know and she's Sukhandra. she says something i think it's sukandra she's saying something about like oh you know the things that you're this i thought buddhism is about like suffering and this stuff and like that's really very different and then he's he's like well you know um are would you be able to um do the science that you do if you were hungry or didn't have shelter or and she's like well you know no you you need that stuff right and he's like uh-huh so it seems like suffering matters um i'm 
you know, I'm, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but like, you know, what's, what's kind of, what's nice about that moment is it's like, um, you know, he's both bringing, you know, like one might assume that what he was bringing was a sort of like spiritual claim. Right. But he's also bringing like the materialist claim too. Right. Like you're, you know, like you can't do the kinds of things that you do, um, except under certain conditions. And those conditions require, certain kind that your needs are fulfilled in certain kinds of ways. Cause if your needs weren't being fulfilled, like you would be having to try to fulfill those needs rather than concentrate on the science. Right. And that, you know, I don't know. It's just like, it has this nice little like inversion of what you expect there, this kind of materialist case. Right. It's an inversion. So I'll just, cause I've got it. It's on page 75 and it's um, why do you pursue the sciences? She says to understand things better. And he goes, and why? And she goes, well, just because. And, she, and he goes, a matter of curiosity. And she goes, yeah, I guess so. And he says, well, what if curiosity is a luxury? She's like, I don't understand that. And he goes, well, first you have to be of a full belly, be in good health, a certain amount of leisure time, absence of pain. That allows you to be curious. And then he's like, if curiosity is a value, then you must reduce suffering to reach the state of curiosity in Buddhism, understanding works to reduce suffering and by reduction of suffering gains more knowledge. So like to be curious in the Western science, I guess, you're gonna be, you're already gonna have some needs fulfilled so that you can be curious so you can increase your understanding. But in Buddhism, understanding reduces the suffering to allow you to be curious in a way. So there is this kind of like flow, right? Um, but like Anna's Im- imagination of that flow is, is like reversed from the way that like the Buddhists understand it to be or something like that. Like understanding doesn't, understanding has to, understanding is a kind of like cure for a dehiscence in the world, excuse me, for a gap <laughs> in the world. That is a kind of form of suffering. Like I suffer because I don't understand what's going on. And in order to alleviate that suffering, I'm going to reach a, some kind of different level of understanding so that I can get to a place where I can actually be curious because curiosity is actually a luxury from this point of view. Whereas at the NSF where they're funding with billions of dollars and they, they live in a house and like have full bellies, they can afford to be curious. And it but doesn't, it's, it's not a, it's not a matter of vital human interest, like right. base need. Right, right. And it doesn't, and it also doesn't have to sort of, um, you know, it doesn't have to occur to Anna that she, um, you know, can do what she does because of certain kinds of material conditions, because like there is, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, because there is a kind of story about like, um, uh, yeah, because there's a kind of story about like intellectual work as not having anything to do with, right? Not, you know, those are two, those are like two separate issues, right? Um, You know, which is either the story of like the person who does intellectual labor 
who, you know, I don't know, like they like eat Soylent or whatever and don't care or, 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 you know, is too distracted to notice what they're eating. Right. Or like, you know, whatever, you know, like how much breast milk they're pumping or whatever. Right. Exactly. And so like that, you know, your body is not supposed to be part of what you're doing because part of what you're doing is not supposed to be labor at all, but something else, right. This sort of special thing that you get to do purely on the basis of like, being smart and having been good at your training and all of those kinds of things, right? Life of the mind. Yeah, the life of the mind, baby. But of course, like, you know, those things are actually like fundamentally entwined. And the question of like, you know, how it could be that everybody could have enough to eat and therefore have the possibility of being curious, like that should also be part, you know, that should also be a question for thinking about like what science is or why you do it. Um, you know, but not in the way that we live. Those questions, those have to be total, two totally different kinds of domains of thought, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where, and whereas the Buddhists are doing science, tracking the tides, and like lobbying the U.S. government because right. they have to, because it's a, it is literally a matter of life and death for right, them. At right. That exactly. Point. Right. Right. And so they live. Right. They know that the crisis is here and they're like living in the sort of like imperative. And also they have a worldview that doesn't like create the same kinds of like separations. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it is an ideological problem. We all have to become Buddhists. (laughs) That's that is the solution. That's the solution. Yes. Good to know. All right. So uh, next episode, we'll all become Buddhists. Matt and I are going to real quick in the next week, we're going to learn a few things. I'm going to do some reading. We're we're naturally, we will approach our spiritual transformation first by reading some books. (laughs) books. (laughs) Like we were taught in grad school. Oh my God. So many books. I, uh, I have a lot of books. Um, All right. I won't say that. Okay. I'll just, we'll just wrap it up here then. The first episode uh, of Green Earth. I think that this was a very, sorry that my phone keeps dinging. Um, I think this was a very enjoyable conversation, Matt. Produ- productive episode yet again, colleague. Gl- glad glad to be back with you um, playing Prisoner's Dilemma as we struggle for supremacy on the Savannah. Well, the good news about the gateway we play Prisoner's Dilemma <laughs> is that we're always generous. <laughs> Yes. Thank you for giving me the gift of your time. Oh, and likewise, (laughs) and also with you. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for listening. I hope uh, maybe, maybe we have some first time listeners. Uh, I've I've been Matt and, and she's been Hillary. That's uh, right. And we are going to spoil things that happen in the novel. I guess actually maybe we didn't really do that this time, but we will. Uh, maybe a little bit, but 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 mostly they were hints. But yeah, we will spoil this whole novel for you. Um, we will endeavor to not spoil other Kim Stanley Robinson <laughs> novels for you, although we can make no guarantees. Our pledge, yeah. Um, but you know, there's only about um, thirty dozen of you listening, so that's not a big deal. I feel like most of our listeners are probably okay with the ramshackle way in which we say whatever comes to our minds. We don't have any listeners. It's just the NSA and like various national security um, algorithms who are like um, honing themselves to imitate human voices or whatever. (laughs) 
deep fake <laughs> algorithms. I'm glad I'm glad we can do this service for the state, you know? Hey, it's it's literally the least we can do. It makes me feel whole. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll hopefully be back next week. You can email us at maroonedonmars at gmail.com or tweet us at podcast on Mars. We'd love or you to can hear even from leave you. a voicemail from us, but but don't do that. Hey, are we going to leave Spotify in protest against Joe Rogan? Are we on Spotify? I'm sure we're on Spotify. Actually, like uh, Anchored FM is owned by Spotify. Oh. So we may really have to have a sit down, a serious sit down and really okay. consider the political ramifications of being embroiled with a Joe Rogan approving, uh, you know, we got to be ethical about this. Yeah. And I just, you know, it just occurs to me as we're saying this, that um, my understanding is that the internet was basically invented by DARPA. Oh, shit. And so <laughs> we're fucked, dude, whatever we do. Well, I guess we're just going to have to stay on Anchor <laughs> FM then. Or we're just going to do this by, we'll do it. We'll just like semaphore to each other. Maybe we can get Joe Rogan on the show. I don't, to be honest with you, I don't even really know who Joe Rogan is. You're better off than <laughs> almost everyone else. Um, okay, that's, that's, we're going to stop there then. Um, thank thank you. you for listening. Thank you for listening. Uh, we will, uh, we'll be back soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.